Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Thanks a lot, Carl. Welcome to Halftime Report. I am Frank Holland in for the Judge Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the kickoff to earnings with the S&P 500 hitting its highest level in more than a year. As results from the big banks start off strong. We're going to discuss those reports and debate if earnings season will be enough to keep this rally going as the next Fed meeting looms large. Joining me for the hour, we have Jason Snipe, Joe Terranova, Jenny Harrington, and Bill Baruch. But first, let's get to a check of the markets. Right now, looking at the Dow, the S&P, and the NASDAQ, and the Russell. The Dow, the S&P, and the NASDAQ higher, but off their highs of the day. The Russell actually moving lower. That's something we're going to talk more about. The S&P and the NASDAQ also hitting 52-week highs. Uh, as I mentioned, the Russell down 1%. But before we get to the markets, let's begin with a trio of top and bottom line beats for big banks. Shares opening higher before losing steam and kind of shifting back and forth. We have seen Wells Fargo go back to being positive. However, Citigroup down more than 2.5%. I just think we got to start here. Let's start with the good. Let's start with J.P. Morgan. What did we learn today? Um, Beats, if you count their acquisition of First Republic assets or not. So a pretty strong quarter for J.P. Morgan. So what we learned is best in breed is exactly that. And the quality of the earnings were incredibly strong for those that own J.P. Morgan like myself. You were rewarded for staying high up in quality. And I think that's the right approach when you're looking at a lot of the banks and certainly looking at financial institutions that are going to be reporting. The reaction today is very interesting. Um, clearly, City not being rewarded for what we heard from them. Uh, I think there was a lot of concern with the consumer at city large card balances being carried much higher rates uh, somewhat of a little bit of a challenging environment trading revenue which we expected down 13 percent uh, two things from two things from wells uh, first of all the reaction so so a little bit muted but i think when you look at wells you have to have concern about them citing office real estate being weak commercial real estate potentially weak and then Charlie Schaaf talking about the regulatory environment tightening even further. So not unexpected what we got today in terms of the reaction because J.P. Morgan is the quality name, and I think that's where you're seeing the best performance. On a, on, on a second note, I think what's important is to look at the trust banks today. Okay, look at the trust banks. State Street down 10%. Northern Trust down uh, 5%, and Bank of New York down somewhere around 7%. So trust banks trading lower, fees not very strong, flows not very strong. So far, it's kind of muted on the financial earnings. You know, Jenny, I want to come to you. I thought Wells Fargo was kind of interesting. It dipped into negative. Now it's rallied again. What did you think about the report? Um, obviously, a more consumer-focused fa- bank there. Uh- To be totally honest, I'm not up to speed on the Wells Fargo report, and so I'm sorry for that. I've just been focusing on the companies in my portfolio. But what I think is really interesting is you saying the more consumer-focused bank. And so when I think about Wells and when I think about when you ask Joe, what do you think about J.P. Morgan, my response would have been 
Jamie's comment, consumer balance sheets remain healthy and consumers are spending, albeit a little more slowly. So to me, like all of Jamie's comments, I thought that was actually the most important, which then even though I'm behind the curve on Wells, translates over. Right. And I and that's what we're seeing. And actually we just did our um, quarterly client call yesterday. And the theme of the quarterly call was that growth is slowing. And we went through all these, and so it's not going negative, right? But we went through all these pressures that are on the consumer. And I don't think the consumer, and, and was, it's hard to explain to your clients on a call, okay, the consumer's resilient, the consumer's holding up, but things aren't as good as they were. So you see things like student loans being needing to be repaid. You see mortgages and um, average monthly housing costs at like $2,000 a month, whereas pre-pandemic they're about $900 a month. You just see all these pressures like really kind of nibbling away at the consumer strength. And if you look at consumer excess savings, which after the money dumps from the pandemic were at 2.1 trillion, those are down to 800 billion. So as we think through Wells, which is really consumer focused, and we think about the fact that the consumer's hanging in there, but slowing, it seems like we're okay, but not robust. And I hope right. that we as an investment community are adjusting our expectations for the real the realism of this environment, which is like, we're fine, just don't expect crazy growth that we've gotten for the past decade, because that's not here anymore. All right, so maybe not crazy growth, but I just want to stick with JP Morgan. That seems to be your focus and everybody's focus. Jamie Dimon saying consumer balance sheets, they remain healthy, mm -hmm. consumers are spending, it is slowing down, but that's not a complete shock, Bill. Yeah, you know, I think these these were upbeat comments from Diamond, and uh, you know, we're far away from from what we heard a couple months back, where the hurricane was coming. I think I think he's on board with we're seeing a, so a soft landing. We had the Michigan consumer data today that was actually better than expected. I'm looking at the loan loss provisions too from J.P. Morgan. If you strip out uh, First Republic, I think they're they're a hundred billion lower than they were a year ago. So I think that says something. I look at that speaking volumes to where they think the trajectory of the economy is going. So wait, you say if you strip out First Republic, isn't it important that if you include First Republic, the beat just gets better? Well, yes, they have $1.5 billion in loan loss provisions. 1.2 of that was set aside from First Republic. And then they year over year, uh, they were at $438 billion a year ago without First Republic. So you stripped out, you know, what they had before was just $100 billion less. So they, their bank is healthy, and the trajectory of the economy, that tells me, uh, is coupled with Diamond's comments. No, let's not, let's not dismiss the quality of the speed. If you, if you strip out First Republic, they still came yes, in yes. above yes. earnings expectations. Either way, you slice right. it. Right. I yeah. mean, th this, was, this was a, a record quarter in terms of revenue. Investment banking, which was expected to slow, did not in the case of J.P. Morgan. Trading, which is slowing, certainly, and we've heard that from Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley's trading revenue is expected to slow. You saw cities trading revenue slowed, but it's not in the case of J.P. Morgan. So there's something about the quality of this money center bank, what Jamie right. Dimon is doing, whether or not you agree with his interpretation of where the consumer is, where the economy is. I, I know there's much criticism. Sometimes he takes it in extreme directions. When you just focus on what this bank is delivering, this is the place to be when you're looking at banks. But you know what's interesting about that? The share price is barely up, which goes back to your Wells Fargo right. point. And so I think- It's a 52-week high. Exactly. Which well, I would argue, though. It's only up about exactly. a third of a percent Right, today. which is I would argue that so much of these positive expectations have already been baked into the share price. That's what these banks do. They, they rally pre-market after these beats. They come back in. They'll settle in over the next week. They'll get some earnings from Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, and I think we'll start to see yeah. things go higher. You know, but but they, they beat 40% profit without First Republic, 67% increase in profit with First Republic. It's a massive beat. You're right, Joe. Well, as we're saying, J.P. Morgan has kind of a muted performance after these beats. We're seeing the stock. <laughs> 
stock actually tick a little bit higher as we're talking. Don't want to leave out Jason Snipe down in my hometown of Philadelphia right now. Jason, what was your take when it came to the big banks and their reports? Um, one thing I'm looking at is Wells Fargo's businesses. Um, another thing, when you look at Wells Fargo, uh, they actually raised their guidance when it came to net interest income. That was supposed to be the area of worry because people were moving their deposits either to mutual funds or bonds. Absolutely, Frank. And I always say that banks are a great uh, read-through to the consumer. And what you've seen with, with the reports from JPM and Wells Fargo is obviously net interest income has most of strength. And uh, to Joe's point, I really like the multifaceted, the big banks uh, that are in the marketplace right now that I think still, even, even, if, we, even if we look at capital formation, I, I think those numbers are starting to trough. And I think there will be some activity going forward through the end of the year and going into next year. Um, so I, I think banks, and also I think the big deal for me was ex expectations were lowered. Right, so it, they weren't jumping off a high mark here, you know. But uh, numbers were positive, and I think that's that's a good read through, you know, for the consumer. And as Jenny said, I think the consumer is hanging in on the margins, and I think that's a net positive for the market. So you're saying expectations have been lower. That kind of leads me to one of your holdings that actually reports next week, Goldman Sachs. Talk about lower expectations. Return on equity is supposed yeah. to be lowest, I believe. Joe, you're over here not in nine years, I think, something like that. Um, what, are your, what, is the, what are you seeing in today's results, and what does that make you think about next week where a couple of your other holdings, Bank of America, Goldman, they report as well? So clearly with Goldman, there's some idiosyncrasies going on with the company. There's, a, there's some issues on the, on the higher end, some of the executives there and, and you know, how, how the CEO is running the company. The retail business clearly was a failure, you know, and they're, they're looking to exit that business. But as it relates to capital formation, I think they're trying to get some steam there. J.P. Morgan had some solid numbers. We'll see what Morgan Stanley looks like. But, I, but on, the, on, on the net end for me, I think you know, some of the bad news is, is behind them. And I think there's some upside you know, for GS going forward. All right. This earnings season just getting underway. So obviously we got to a pretty strong start with the banks. They all beat the performance um, pretty strong with the exception uh, you know, of one of them. We're seeing the move to the upside, but I think the question now is, is earnings, is that going to keep this rally going and, and going higher? Joe, in your mind, what we're seeing today, some pretty solid beats. What do you expect the next week? Is that enough to keep the momentum going? Well, I, I think Jenny accurately described the environment. You're not in an environment of robust growth. You're not in an environment where growth is contracting significantly. Growth is moderate and moderate growth at best. So what has made the return in 2023 is the quality factor. If you look at the quality factor and compare it to the S&P 500 since March 12th of 2020, which is the Thursday in which we basically froze the economy, the NBA, the NHL, they all shut down. The S&P had actually outperformed quality, but on a 5, 10, 15, and 20-year time frame, quality as a factor generally will be outperforming. So quality is outperforming once again. I think it's indicative of this kind of collective environment where you have this moderate growth, and it's represented in this concentrated outperformance from technology, mega cap consumer discretionary, because they are the essence of what quality is when you study their balance sheet. So if you're looking at this earnings season, to me, it really is a narrow list of equities that you need to perform and for the market not to deteriorate significantly into a deeper correction. This quarter, I will take sideways 
as the Same. end result. Right. Yeah. But the, my only difference there is I would argue that we need a broader section of equities to just hold up on earnings, to get to that sideways. And so it was interesting when you said, do we need earnings to keep the rally going? Like, I'm, we're up 17.6% on the year on the S&P 500. I'm not even hoping for the rally to get going. And I think it's interesting if we look back to what happened last quarter, last quarter, 78% of companies beat, but 67 companies in the S&P 500 lowered guidance. Meanwhile, analysts haven't really adjusted their forecast for the S&P 500 broadly down. So you have a huge amount of companies saying like, hey, you know, we're kind of going to be flat. We're not going to be as up as much as we thought we were. But expectations for 24 earnings are still almost 13%. I think it's 11.5% higher than 2023 earnings. Okay. So there's this mismatch. So I'm hoping for earnings and what I'm, I'm hoping and expecting that if we can just come in kind of in line with expectations without exceeding, we can sustain the up 17.5% because if we're in this $220, $230 earnings and we're trading it 19 times, like you don't have much room for disappointment there. Well, I just want to be clear. Uh, seven out of 11 sectors are expected to post low single digit or negative EPS growth. So you're saying if we meet that extremely low bar, the market can at least stay steady? Because that seems, especially with tech, expected to see a 2.9% decline when it comes to earnings. How are both of those things possible? Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, so. Then you need a higher multiple ascribed to the S&P 500. How do you get to the higher multiple? As inflation comes down, if interest rates don't continue to go up, like you could get from a 19 times, I don't know, to 2021. So that's one way. Or you broaden out and actually beat that. So you need where tech might be, tech earnings might not be growing at the same rate or coming down. Then you need all the weird little stocks in my portfolio to actually like carry the weight. And so you need the other 493 to step up and do the heavy lifting. It's okay. got, but it's got to be one or the other. Either you need the big dogs to like outperform, or you need the other 493 to, you know, to, to pick. I don't know what other okay. way to say it. Pick up uh, and carry the weight. I want to bounce something off, Bill. Yep. I want to bounce something off if you don't mind. We have a, we have a chart right here, just over this week alone. So, looking at the Nasdaq 100 this week, up four and a half percent. But you look at some other much higher valuation areas of tech. Uh, outperforming, at least in some cases, see the BOTZ ETF, 4P of 40 times, see the cloud competing ETF, 4P of 59 times, outperforming the NASDAQ 100. What does that tell you about the, the whole valuation story we've been talking about all year, Bill? I, I think Jenny's onto something that tying that what you're saying about valuation is, is that the, the guidance and the expectations have been lower. And, and that's been a theme for, for the way I invested all year. And the reality is you take a step back. I mean, this is a bull market. It's been a bull market. And it's, it's fun to see this in a bull market. I, this is exciting. And I, I think that we're going to see earnings come and continue to be solid. And those lower bars are going to be beaten. Yes, some of the valuations are high. But I think there is going to be, I think they're going to, going to meet those with revenue. Revenue, And one of the things that I think is going to be very important, and Jenny pointed to, was, was the interest rates. And I, as a futures trader, I'm also watching interest rates and trading, trading the belly of the curve and looking at where things are. We had a massive flush down in prices of treasuries to start this month out. And that, that I think, is the start of a capitulation in the treasury market. So, and the reason being, if you go back to last year, last month, when the debt ceiling was, was fixed, 
they did T-bills. They issued about, what, 700, 800 billion in T-bills. Now they're going to issue in longer than, than one year the notes and bonds. The market priced that in very quickly. If that happens with the way it's priced in and inflation starts coming down, we're going to see the, the Treasury market rise, meaning yields are coming down. And that's going to become a tailwind to earnings. It's going to become a tailwind to the market. And that's why I think this bull market is just getting started. And it's, it's, it's a fun thing to see. How big of a part is that is CPI? We've got to remember Tom Lee, he called this in a note. He said a 100-point S&P rally was coming post-CPI print. We're up 111 points or over 111 points as of Thursday's close. So was CPI that meaningful? Did we did maybe mm-hmm. underestimate the importance of inflation showing a, a very clear downward trend? One CPI report is not what is critically important. What is important is that this disinflationary trend appears to be in place. And what does that do? It washes away this misperception that was being communicated one year ago that inflation was entrenched and that it was 70s style inflation. Mm -hmm. And that in fact is not the case. The inflation happens to be, guess what? The, the inflation is transitory. The inflation, okay. It's been in transit pan- for a while, though. But it's, it's, it's pan- been in transit pan- for quite a while. It's pandemic-induced. It's mm-hmm. pandemic-induced. It is because there was a, a it, not a fair understanding of what the economy really was. There was too much fiscal and monetary stimulus that was being afforded. That, obviously, is beginning to be pulled back. And I think that's the message as you look forward. This isn't the 70s. You don't have to be afraid of inflation like you were in the 70s. Why? Because in the 70s, you had nine years, nine years where inflation ran at an annualized 9% and equities only gave you 4%. That's not where we are today. That's the the message. And the rest of the world is beginning to export their deflation to the United States. Just look at what's going on with Europe in a technical economic recession and look at what we're seeing in China. So, Jason, I want to come over to you. I also want to give Tom Lee his flowers once again, saying that inflation's falling like a rock. It seems like that's true. He also said that investors were not quite positioned to see this decline in inflation. Do you agree with that? Is that part of what's fueling this rally? People trying to catch up to the idea that inflation's not as bad as they may have thought? I absolutely think that's a very important point to make. I mean, the headline number is down nine months in a row. Uh, clearly, we're coming off the high water mark uh, of last year, which was June, which is the inflation was up, CPI was up 9.1%. So it, it, was, it was clear that we were kind of get, get close to a three-handle, and obviously we're at a three-handle now. Where I'm really focused, however, is on the month-over-month numbers. Like, how long do we stay down here? But I think to Joe's point, I do think inflation starts to continue to subside and, and, and really moderate. Uh, we're seeing that with auto numbers this month and, and other places of the economy. So I, I think that's clearly a tailwind. Also, we've seen yields pull back some. And then, you know, we're also, I think the third piece for me is looking at the dollar. You know, the dollar is down 10% since its high water mark in September of 2022. We will see that going into the next quarter for clearly a lot of the multinational companies and, and a lot of growth, which is, which is in tech. So I think that'll, that'll be a tailwind for stocks. Just getting back to like, do did investors appreciate where inflation was heading? I'm going to argue a hearty yes. And after the show, I'm going to post this slide from my client call on Twitter. So if we take a bigger term look, right, and we go back to September of 2022, CPI was 8.3, PE on the market was 15.1. Fast forward a quarter, CPI is 7, PE is 16. Fast forward a quarter, CPI is 5, PE is 17. Right now, CPI is 3, 
multiples of like 19 and change. So I would say like that 100 points, like, yeah, that's great, but it's also just a tiny rounding error. I think people have been adjusting for this completely, and that's why we've seen over the last 12 months the multiple on the market expand from 15.1 times to 19. It's just the correlation between inflation and the multiple ascribed to the S&P 500 is stunningly tight. You know, I want to bounce something off you with that sentiment in mind. This comes from Vital Knowledge. They put out a I note earlier this him. morning. Adam, those guys put out some great notes. Yep. So they say in part, echoes of Wednesday CPI are still reverberating throughout the global markets. As investor psychology gradually begins to shift away from battling the macro goes to the first half, uh, rampant inflation and a hard landing and towards embracing the prospect of a brighter second half, one defined by a Goldilocks data and continued corporate strength. I read this today and it, it really feels like it encapsulates what we're seeing this week, Joe. Is this a little bit too rosy of an outlook in your mind? I mean, are there some headwinds that we have to watch out or has the sentiment shift? <laughs> you, you just laughed right there. Well, there's always headwinds. Of course. But I I'm mean, saying, yeah, not, not possible, probable. Well, there's, there's headwinds in terms of, of valuation. There's headwinds in terms of if inflation were to rise significantly again and the Fed needs to get adversarial. I don't think that happens because if you look at the Fed fund's real rate, that's where the V-shaped recovery has been. The Fed fund's real rate was negative 8% just one year ago. Now it's positive 2 so uh, positive 2%. So is the earning malaise going to be more entrenched than what people are expecting. I think that's the real risk for the market. I don't see that. I think the market, by the end of the year, really accelerates this positive trend that's unfolding. And I think largely it's rooted in technology, mega caps, and growth coming back once again. That, to me, is the dominant story of 23. So Go ahead. I mean, so, okay, Jenny, have, have we exercised these macro ghosts? I mean, are, are you agreeing with this? I, to me, it I felt like it really encapsulated I what agree. we've been seeing this week. And I think absolutely. Like, if we think about the garbage that we got through in the first half, we had a huge stress test of the banking system. We've seen behavior normalize in terms of predictability. Corporate earnings normalize in terms of predictability. Supply chains normalize. We know where we know where inflation's going. We know what the Fed's doing. But here's where I have an issue. When we say Goldilocks and brighter, to me. I don't see that meaning another 17% return in the second half. To me, like that Goldilocks and Brighter simply says you get to keep your 16% or your 17.6% year-to-date return. I'm not going to take it away. Right. And if we end the year at this level, to me, that's an enormous victory. And that's the gift that his brighter second half gives us, is the, is the, the opportunity to keep such a nice return on the year. And I think, I think we could be at record highs before the end of the year. I don't think it's just holding here. record highs, it's like, what, 2 3% more? Yeah, but, you know, 5 10%. It's not 17. Yeah, it's not. 7%. And we, and we become really comfortable with brighter outlook. Stuff. We become, you know, everything's like, oh, brighter outlook, up 35%. Like, no. But analysts are still very negative, and I see that becoming a tailwind. So That's a great point. I've been extremely bullish this year, and, and I'm a realist, though. I do think that we are, we are starting to hit some point of exhaustion. I think even on this leg, it's just breaking out so there's some room to go here what i'm looking at is the seasonality right now at the end of june through the end of july the market is has been up 15 in the last 15 years and that s&p's averaged three or four percent but when we go to august and october it's a cooling off period so i think there's going to be a correction that happens in august october now if it happens in august it could happen in the s&p 4600 4650 area and it could be a five percent correction if it happens in october it, it could be from record highs it could be more of a ten percent correction but i expect all those bears all those have been negative this market 
They're going to use that as an opportunity to turn bullish again if they're smart. Okay. And that's going to become the next tailwind for the quarter four, what could be a Christmas rally. And I think we finished the year very strong. The way things are setting up, the, my, the headwind would be, though, is if the base comparisons for inflation, they're going to start moving lower into the second half of the year, and inflation could become a headwind there. That, that's where my, one of my concerns. Yeah, and All you right. know, getting from that 3% down to 2%, like, that's the hard done, part. That's it's the like hard losing part. the last 10 pounds. Totally. It's like getting that down. That's Jay- the best analogy. So, Jason, you should have drove up here, but I'm totally still going to give you a chance to, to button this one up. <laughs> one last quick comment. Exercise the ghost, or is it still a little spooky out there? No, I, 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 think, I think the second half, I think Jenny makes a really great point. I mean, listen, the, the S&P is already up 17.5%. The NAS is up 35%. I think it's, it's really going to boil down to how inflation moderates. And to your point, this, this, this move from 3 to 2%, which is obviously the Fed's target, is going to be the toughest piece. But, you know, again, I, I, think it, I think inflation will continue to moderate. And I do think we could see some incremental returns. I don't think we'll see what we saw in the first half. But I, that's really my view on it, how we see the second half going forward. All right, got to leave it there. Straight ahead, our chart of the day, United Health is the top Dow gainer after a strong earnings beat. We've got some ownership right here on the committee. That trades up next on Halftime. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Halftime Report. We have a news alert on UPS. The company saying it's going to begin continuity training for many of its U.S. employees in the coming week. So the company is prepared in the event of a labor disruption. Remember, the company's in the process of trying to renegotiate an agreement with the Teamsters Union. That contract expires on July 31st. UPS says it is still focused on reaching the agreement. Those negotiations have gotten a bit contentious. Shares of UPS down a half a percent right now. Joe, you have some ownership in UPS and the Joe T ETF. How concerned are you about this? Again, agreement runs out on July 31st. I'm not concerned about my position. I'm concerned about the effect on the economy because this is real. This is damaging. This is the type of effect uh, that's going to be billions of dollars. This is something that the economy and the country has not seen in some time. So I'm hopeful that we're going to reach a point where there is some form of a resolution because I don't think this is what we need at this point in the recovery. Um, In in terms of, of the equity itself, UPS and FedEx, 
Um, each of them, FedEx focusing on cost efficiency. FedEx is having a quality year in 2023, but that's just recapturing a lot of losses from 2022. Yes. I still believe UPS is the better franchise between the two. Over the long term, they've managed the balance sheet better, uh, underperforming relative to FedEx so far year to date. But I'm OK with that. Looking at the long term, I think it's a better company. You know, I, I want to make sure that everybody realizes Joe's not understating. UPS actually put out some data a couple years ago. They moved 3% of global GDP, about 6% of U.S. GDP. There's a problem. Those figures released a couple years ago, but you'd imagine it stays in about the same time frame. You guys worried at all what this could mean for the broader economy, also potentially consumer spending? If people don't feel like they can get their e-commerce, do they still buy it? If anything, that could actually become, you know, Consumer spending down is a tailwind to what the Fed's trying to do, and, and it lowers that consumer demand with the headwinds of, of some of the credit card debt rising. So I think, if anything, I mean, it's, it's bad for slowing the economy in general, but it could be a tailwind uh, for what the Fed's trying to accomplish, and I think that's good for the market. I had a, like, bigger macro kind of thought on it. So as I was driving in this morning, I was listening to this great podcast by um, Jim Grant of Seth Klarman. And one of the things that Klarman is talking about is how unsustainable huge margins are because they're always under attack from competition or from labor. You know, and so when a company's making a lot of money, they're always going to have one of those one of those things coming at them. So I, I heard this and I just thought like, oh, you know, reminder when you see not just UPS, right, because that's different, but when we see those valuations that you had up there before, companies trading at 40 times and 59 times earnings because all their revenues are growing huge and the margins are really high, like those things get competed away. Well, let's remember, though, labor for the very first time in decades has a degree of leverage that they haven't had. Absolutely. Yeah. A very tight labor market, um, a couple of number issues. And we're also just seeing a rise in labor, whether you look at um, what's going on with the writer's strike, what's going mm -hmm. on with UAW. We're just seeing a, definitely an uptick in the, you know, I guess, enthusiasm when it comes to labor. And that's going to work its way through, right? On the one hand, it puts more money in people's in individuals' pockets if they, yeah. you know, if wage growth continues up. On the other right. hand, it could pressure earnings. All right. Let's shift gears a bit. Let's get over to our chart of the day. United Health leading the Dow today on pace for its best day in a year this after an earnings beat and some very strong guidance actually raising full-year EPS guidance. Jason, you own this one. Yeah, UNH is, I mean, the price action has been somewhat challenging so far this year. I think it's down uh, roughly around 9%. And I think generally that that's a you know, tied to the fact that going into election year, Medicaid and Medicare pricing is generally on the docket. And I think that's been somewhat of a weight on the stock. But this has been an impressive print here. Optum was up, you know, over 25%. That's the services side of the business. You know, obviously utilization is up significantly. So I, I always have liked UNH. I think it's a, it's a stalwart in the healthcare space. And that's why we own it. Yeah, I mean, just a general thought about the healthcare space. Anybody else? Pretty excited about the healthcare space now after this report because remember UNH was the first person to flag that more seniors are getting operations. They thought it would hit margins, and then you see them turn around just a few weeks later, raise their EPS guidance bill. I see yeah. you not. We we own UNH, and it's been a just it's a staple within our portfolio. One of the stocks we like. Last year it performed really well. So the fact that Jason cited, he's right. It's down seven eight percent this year, but that's coming off of a very strong year last year relative to the rest of the market, and uh, so they lowered that bar. The pickleball narrative lowered the bar for what these these operations costs that we're going to see. And, and their revenue was up 13%, costs were up 16%, and the medical medical uh, ratio was 83% compared to 81% last year, but it was in line with what uh, the, the, the analysts were expecting. So I think the market just is really liking this. The reality is 2023 for healthcare is not 2022. We own 23 names in healthcare in the Joe T. Um, whether it's Elevance, Humana, or United Healthcare, it's at the bottom 
of those lists in terms of performance. Um, I'm not overly excited about what I'm seeing today, each of those names. It has lost momentum and understand what you're hearing today. Look, CFO John Rex from United Health was out front and center talking about the impact of medical costs. So the bar was lowered significantly. All we've done here really is exceed a very low bar. We got to move on, Jenny. But one thing I thought was actually interesting, Eli Lilly getting almost no press today, making an acquisition of a weight loss, a private company stock up 3%, something I'm sure we'll talk about later in the day. See shares are up 3% after that acquisition. All right, time now though for the headlines. We have our Kate Rooney. Kate, good afternoon. Hey there, Frank. I'm Kate Rooney. Here is your CNBC news update. The House narrowly passed an annual defense policy bill after Republicans added provisions on abortion and transgender surgeries. This amendment would ban the Pentagon from paying expenses related to these procedures. The legislation still needs to be reconciled with the Senate version of that bill. After hitting a record 100 million signups in just five days, Meta's new app, Threads, is seeing a drop-off in engagement. The number of daily active users on the platform was down about 20% since its launch. That's according to data from Sensor Tower. A Meta spokesperson said the company is focusing on stable performance, delivering new features and improving user experience. And Southern Europe is scorching, forcing countries to halt popular tourist attractions. Greece closed the Acropolis during peak heat to protect visitors. Record temperatures could be reached next week with another heat wave rolling in. And the country is at risk right now of wildfires. Frank, back over to you. I'm going to try it. Wow, very difficult situation. Uh, Heat wave here in the United States as well. It's just kind of all over the world. Not in San Francisco, if you see behind me. Not in San Francisco? (laughs) (laughs) You're the exception. R.K. Rooney, thank you very much. Thanks, Rick. All right, happening right now, a Hollywood standstill as the Actors Union joins the writers' strike. Disney's Bob Iger telling David Faber in a CNBC exclusive yesterday that the writers and actors, that they're not being realistic with their expectations. Pressure's building on the media stocks. A price target cut for Disney today. We'll hit that call. That's coming up next. Halftime, back in two minutes. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. Time now for our call of the day. Credit Suisse cutting Disney's price target to 126. Jenny, you own Disney. Right. Um, so in that Credit Suisse price target cut, let's be real about it. They cut it to 126. That would imply a 40% upside from here. And in that report, they point out some really interesting things. They say that Disney's media business of $60 billion against its $60 billion media revenue value, they can take that and they compare that to Netflix, which is valued at $210 billion against $30 billion, $34 billion of revenue value. So you see that there's this massive, massive valuation gap here. From our perspective on Disney, I've been trying to come up with a good analogy, and I think it's a lot like New York City. You know, like New York City might get down and out occasionally, but you're kind of foolish if in the long term you bet against New York City. I think Disney's going through a rough patch, but if we don't think that Disney's going to create amazing content, that the theme parks will continue to be 
unbelievably enjoyed by people once these crazy hot temperatures both here and overseas cool down and people return to the theme parks. If you bet against Disney, I think it's a fool's bet. You just need to be patient, you know, wait it out and know that their earnings are going to return to, and we've been wrong on this so far, but I think they do one day. It might be a lot longer than we thought, but one day they get back to 10 bucks a share. You know, it might be three or four years from now, but that seems to be the trajectory for me. Really, not worried about the writer's strike, not That's worried about some movies not That's really performing, like, maybe the Marvel Cinematic Universe cooling off. None of those things are concerned, not to mention the legacy TV business. I mean, there's a couple things going on here. To today. me, though, Frank, those are all really short term. Like, do I worry about all those? Yes, for the next year. Well, in all fairness, me- Legacy, okay. Legacy TV and, and ESPN, that's not short term. But it's Disney. Like, they're going to figure out a way to, to overcome so what, what, it. They have some of the best As management. an investor in Disney, what, it, what is it that you would think they should do with ESPN? Do they need a, <laughs> I don't know. Do they need a tech I, partner? No, that's a real question. Yeah, but I really do they need don't a know. tech partner? They need to do something. Right. ESPN needs to be monetized in some way. Do they need to introduce or tie it Here's to some what, form of gaming? Do they need Apple? They have to do something there. Here's what I want that to see them do, which is what they've already done. I'm like, I have no idea. I'm not in that business. What I want is them to bring the best management in, back in this case, to fix it and figure it out. And like, don't you think that Bob Iger knows how to fix that and figure that out better than anyone else in this country? Maybe they need activists. Yeah. I'm not sure I know. I'm not sure I know. Jason, as an investor, don't I leave like, you out this conversation. You own Netflix. Uh, you own it too, Joe, and so do you. But Jason, I want to come to you so we don't leave you out. Your thoughts on this uh, call on Disney? Yeah, so I, I formerly owned uh, Disney about two years ago. And I think, to Jenny's point, I think they had great assets. And every fund, if anyone's going to write this ship, it's Bob Iger. And I think just the fact that he's going to extend his stay a little bit longer is positive for the stock. But for me, uh, Netflix has been the play. I mean, obviously, it's been outperforming this year. It's just hit a 52-week high. It's up 52%. Um, They're really working through the kind of password share. The ad-supported tier is starting to work really well. And they're starting to generate free cash flow again. Um, So for me, I like the pure streaming play with Netflix uh, in this moment in time. And, you know, maybe we'll revisit Disney down the road. All right, Disney shares down 1.5%. All right, coming up next, we got our Mike Santoli. He's going to join us with his midday word. Much more halftime back right after this break. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. Senior Markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us now with his midday word. Mike, we're just looking at the board there. Still in the green, solidly on pace for a fifth straight of gains, fifth straight day of gains, but off the highs. Yeah, off the highs. Market's definitely a little bit fatigued. Uh, Both the NASDAQ 100 and the Russell 2000, kind of both ends of the spectrum. Uh, We're up more than 4% week to date coming into today. And even though... Say we say we're in the green. 80% of New York Stock Exchange volumes to the downside today. So it's another one of those days where a handful of stocks just kind of holding the indexes together. It makes sense here, just given how stretched we've uh, we've gotten just above the trend. This acceleration this week shows you that uh, a lot of people felt forced to embrace the soft economic landing scenario. There was a little bit of a of a green light flashing from the CPI number. I think the big question for the market is. Did the market already more or less figure that out before everybody got on board with it? Because the market's been acting for most of the year as if right. inflation in the Fed were last year's problems. And now that everyone's kind of bought in, uh, is the time for some kind of reset lower. So I want to bring you into a conversation we had earlier, uh, vital knowledge notes saying that the market seems to basically exercise the macro ghost of inflation, a yep. hard landing. 
Um, has it definitely in your mind? And if we're going to have a pullback, what would that look like? I don't think it is uh, is banished those ghosts necessarily. I mean, for now, they don't look threatening. Uh, I totally agree with that. But it raises the bar for everyone to be impressed with what happens next. A pullback of, I mean, four or five percent would be no big deal from here from a longer term perspective. Uh, I think ideally the bulls would like to see it hold even a, a little bit higher than that because we've been overbought for like a month based on a lot of the statistics and uh, and that's a mark of a bull market but it also shows you that as you get stretched you get a little bit uh, more fragile up right. there. So we'll see. Jenny says it can just stay sideways. She'd be happy. Mike. No exactly. Hey we went sideways yeah. during earnings season last quarter right. by the way for a whole month. Didn't Mike. do anything. Mike always great to see you. Right. Our Mike Santoli with his midday word. All right, coming up, your earnings playbook outside of the banks for next week. We've got much more halftime after this break. We are back here on Halftime. This gives you set up for the big week ahead of earnings outside of the big banks, starting with Tesla reporting Wednesday. Bill, you own it. Yeah, I'm really excited for this earnings report. I'm going to maybe hear more about the, charge, the charging stations with GM and Ford. We're looking for a significant increase in revenues as well. 24.7 billion compared to the previous report, 23 billion. Uh, the stock's just been on an absolute tear. It's definitely one of those stocks, and, and Joe and I have talked about it before, where it's, 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 you get treated like a commodity. This when a lot of volatility. I watch it against copper, and copper has been lagging higher quite a bit. So once we get past earnings season, if they don't disappoint, I think a lot of that ties to China. There's a lot of positive momentum around it, and I'm, I'm expecting this thing to, to really get out above 300. All right, certainly something to watch. And speaking of Tesla, ARK Invest Kathy Wood continues to, sh- to sell her shares of the stock. Don't miss her tonight on CNBC. She'll be on at 6 p.m. Eastern for a special edition of Tech Track with our dear Drabosa. All right, let's move to IBM reporting Wednesday, one of the worst performing stocks in the tech sector this year. Jenny, you own Big Blue. Okay, it's so insulting that that everyone's like, oh, it's the worst performing stock because last year it was the best performing stock. So last year IBM was flat when the entire tech index was down 28%. So like, let's give the poor thing a little respect. Um, (laughs) With respect to earnings, I think they should be kind of as expected, where they're going to guide to full year earnings of 940. Last year they were 910, so it's this really like predictable, slow and steady growth. I think AI could start to enter the conversation with them more than it has already. That's just in the cards, but it's going to be in the way that AI should enter the conversation, which is pervasive throughout the economy, meaningfully positive to a lot of companies that have a role in it. I'm not expecting anything wild. Jimmy, I got to. I'm a little shocked. Do you shy. want to give see? me a layup? What? Do you want? Are you LeBron and D Wade thing right here? A little something. All right, go ahead. I don't even over, know where we're going. Over the last five years, stock's lower. Okay, wow. but still. But still? Like, let's show I a I thought you guys respect. were friends. We are. We are. <laughs> no, I'm just I, I was hoping for IBM to start last year, and I, and then when they had the CEO change, it just, it's been a tough one. But I am excited, potentially, for the AI chip talk of using their own chips wait, and see where it comes but, from. But you but guys are saying it's going to be like a... Wait, wait a second, Jenny. You're saying it should enter. They're rebooting Watson and trying to, to monetize it. Shouldn't that be the whole earnings call, just what we're going to do with AI? Just like every um, other company that has AI? I mean, they were really a leader in AI, and somehow, at least in sentiment, have fallen behind. Yeah, so I think that's the thing. Like, the way we're talking about AI is if it's winner takes all, you know, and just one big benefit to the business. But IBM's a huge company, and I think they'd be doing their investors a disservice if they suddenly pretend that AI is everything. Like, they have this huge services business. They have an enterprise business. They need to do the right thing and talk about all that. If they just hype one element, 
right, that has really long dated growth, then they're going to kind of mislead people and maybe they end up in the spot where the stock, you know, which I don't think this is gonna be the case, I don't even think it could be, but like what you don't wanna have happen is just to juice your stock you know, see it at 300, disappoint everybody, have it crumble. Like, why not just deliver a balanced message and say, here are how the different segments are doing. Here's where we see tailwinds. Here's where we see headwinds. Here's a bright spot. And I think that's what we're going to get. I mean, a measured take, but I think one of the places they're going to see headwinds is probably consulting. So I, you would think they'd want to play up AI, but we'll have to wait and, and maybe, see. And maybe they will, but it doesn't need to be dominant. And it certainly shouldn't be dominant. All right. We'll have to wait and see. All right. Stay with Halftime. Grave My Trade. That's coming up next on Halftime. Halftime, time now for Grade My Trade. We're going to start off with Jason. Suzanne from New Jersey bought Palo Alto at $2.12 a share at the end of May. Should she buy more, sell, or hold? So I would, I would hold it here. I, I, I actually trimmed it a couple of weeks ago. I mean, the stock has been, you know, unbelievable this year. It's up over 70% year to date. Um, they have, I think they have a really strong mode and just the, the fact that they've got a really strong government contract that they're still doing business with. But I, I, w- I would hold here. Um, there might be another opportunity here in the near term to, to add to it. All right, we got one for Jenny now. Gene is thinking about purchasing 3M. The stock is at 102. What are your thoughts? I think it's hard to grade a trade when someone hasn't made a trade, right? But because you're thinking of it, I'll give you an A. <laughs> so, um, so I think it's an interesting time to buy 3M. As we know, they've been in the, under this enormous cloud from the earplug litigation, the PFAS litigation, and numbers are starting to come around that. So I think the cloud should start to lift. The company's beleaguered, and we know that, but if we look at the history, they've paid a dividend for 100 years. They've raised the dividend for 64 years. They're really committed to that. You've got a 5.8% yield, and they're really in some innovative spots. Like, there was this really interesting article in a local paper that talks about these robots for um, that they've sold to BMW. And the head of like robotic in- innovation there is saying, like, look, sometimes it's slow to take off, but once it does, everybody gets on board. We don't, like, you don't think of 3M as making robots for a BMW factory in Germany, but they're really meaningful, and they're always trying to solve innovative problems problems that need innovation. And I think that I think we shouldn't bet against 3M either. And now is probably the right time to buy it because it's dirt cheap and you're going to get 5.8% yield at the very least. All right, we got one for Joe. Scotty in Malibu, he bought Uber at 31 bucks. He was going to hold it for a few years, but should he sell instead? So he was going to hold it for a few years. Scotty, first of all, A-plus on the buy at 31. We don't change the plan when the plan is working. The plan remains in place in two to three years from now. This is a company that's in the S&P 500 and I believe trading 65 to $70. All right, one more for Bill. Stanley bought AMD at 59 bucks. How long should he ride the rainbow? Well, first off, Stanley, congratulations. What a buy at $59. We own AMD, and I'm still very bullish on the on the artificial intelligence space. I, I think that no one's really next to NVIDIA, but if anybody's going to surprise and close that gap, it really could be AMD. You're starting to see the AI really kind of trickle out everywhere. Uh, you, NVIDIA making a move on recursion, uh, pharmaceutical company. Uh, you're seeing Schlumberger talk with Petrobras about, about implementing their machine learning and AI. This space is going to continue to expand. AMD is going to be right in the middle of it, but here's the caveat. You do not not want to see it break below 100 to 105 dollars there there's that's going to be the huge support we get below there i'd be worried all right coming up on half we got the final trades stay with us time now for final trades jason you're up first 
I like IQV here. Uh, they have significant tailwinds from their AI platform, clinical research company. I like it here. Joe, I bought Datadog in the mid-80s. I sold out half in the mid-90s. I'm staying with the rest of the position. I think this goes 125. Jenny? Riffing off of our earlier healthcare conversation, Organon, spun off from Merck two years ago, been sitting in the penalty box, 5.5% yield, five times earnings, nice place to hide out with uncertainty abounding. Bill, last word. SLB, they are introducing their AI and machine learning platform into the oil space. I think this thing has tailwinds. It's moved a lot recently, so it's a consolidation here would be really healthy for them taking the next leg. All right, that's going to do it for Halftime. The exchange with John Ford, it starts right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.